and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Stephen Lubet, Williams Professor of Law at the Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. We will discuss his book, Interrogating Ethnography, Why Evidence Matters, which is published by Oxford University Press. So welcome to the program, Stephen. Good to be here. All right. Um, so this book, uh, I've been following the release of the book and its reception by the ethnographic community, which I, I hope we can talk about talk about later. But um, I, I really enjoyed reading it and found it a kind of a really provocative way of thinking about what it is that ethnographers do and how how they do it. Um, but for listeners who might not be familiar with ethnography and, and sociology, I wonder if you could just briefly kind of explain to people what ethnography is and sort of how it relates to sociology as a broader broader field. Ethnography uh, sounds as though uh, it's about ethnic groups, and that's the way it began. Uh, but it is, uh, I think, currently... Uh, the study of communities by participant observers. I think that's the uh, the, the the simplest way to uh, put it. There are many branches uh, and many uh, approaches to ethnography, and 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 uh, I have not really uh, immersed myself in the inside baseball aspects of it because uh, my interest has been in the sort of broader uh, reliability of the various studies. But I, I, I think you could safely say it is the uh, intensive study of a particular community uh, by a uh, participant observer, somebody who lives or at least uh, spends lots and lots of time uh, within, within the community. And it, it can be a physical community, a professional community, um, or a uh, hobby community. There have been ethnographies of mycologists, uh, mushroom hunters, uh, Little League baseball on, on one end of the spectrum, and ethnographies of, of criminals on the other end and uh, of hospitals somewhere in between. Okay. Okay. So what kinds of evidence do ethnographers gather and use when they're conducting these studies? Well, I think they fall into three categories, uh, although the ethnographers don't really uh, put it this way. Uh, one is uh, the firsthand observation, the things that the participant observer actually sees uh, and experiences. Uh, the second is information that is provided secondhand uh, from the sources or the, they call uh, or, or informants, they call them. Uh, the people who are being studied. And the third sort would be familiar to lawyers uh, is so, so sort of background uh, documentation and, and other sorts of, uh, of information. But the gold standard in ethnography is, is the participant observers, the researchers, uh, actual experience and observation. Yeah. So your book is kind of a critical reflection on how ethnographers gather and use evidence. W what was it? Could you talk a little bit about what it was that kind of sparked your interest in this topic and in, in, in uh, embarking on this project? Sure. Although I hope we won't dwell on it. Um, 
almost four years ago, almost exactly uh, four years ago, a good friend of mine recommended a book that had it was a bestseller, at least within the world of sociology, uh, called On the Run uh, by a young woman named Alice Goffman, uh, who was at the time, I guess she still is, I'm sorry, uh, a professor at the University of Wisconsin. And, and the book uh, recorded or reported on uh, six years that she had spent uh, living in a, an African-American community in West Philadelphia uh, among people whom she called on the run, uh, sort of petty criminals uh, whose um, exposure to the criminal justice system had resulted in a series of warrants uh, that made them unable uh, to participate in, in sort of regular above-ground activities from employment, uh, couldn't get driver's licenses, uh, couldn't, couldn't really attend school. Um, and, and she started this research uh, when she had been an undergraduate at the University of Pennsylvania and continued it on into her graduate years at Princeton and then ultimately uh, wrote the book uh, that was released in 2014. So, so, so a good friend of mine read this book, which had gotten glowing reviews, New York Review Books, New York Times, um, The New Yorker, um, and places outside of New York. I had really gotten glowing reviews. Um, so so I, I read the book uh, expecting really to like it. And there's a lot in it to like. It's very well written. It's extremely interesting. It's a, but, um, but page after page, I, I kept running across... Uh, incidents that she reported. And I thought, no, you know, that that can't have happened the way she puts it. I have some experience in, in communities like that uh, from long ago. And I thought, you know, and, and more recently in criminal justice systems in Chicago. And I thought, you know, th this is just not uh, not accurate, can't be right. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about your own research process in preparing to write this book. Sure, sure. So, so first, let me tell you what I did with On the Run, um, reporting these very incidents, various incidents that that she claimed occurred in um, in Philadelphia. The one that one that's the most famous uh, is the claim that the Philadelphia police uh, set up uh, checkpoints outside of emergency rooms in the hospitals that serve the African American community and demand the ID of people walking in, in order to run them for warrants. Uh, and then she added that they obtain uh, patient and visitor lists uh, from, from these hospitals and run those for warrants. So, you know, that's a very specific claim. And, and, and at least in the, the, the explanation of it in, in On the Run, it's something that would be happening out in the open. Uh, so I read three other uh, ethnographies of the same neighborhoods in Philadelphia, including one uh, that took place in hospital emergency rooms, and nobody reported anything at all similar. So I then contacted uh, every hospital uh, that would roughly fit the definition that she, she was describing, and I spoke to security and public relations and other officials there. They all denied that anything like that went on. Uh, I interviewed two Philadelphia public defenders. Uh, they said that nothing like that had ever occurred. And finally, I interviewed um, 
the public safety director who had then been in office in Philadelphia, an African-American who himself had been a public defender for 20 years before becoming the director of public safety, which is like the superintendent of police. And he said the same thing, that nothing like that ever happened. Uh, so that that made me pretty much conclude that at a minimum, this, this idea of a police cordon around the emergency room uh, was exaggerated. Uh, and I wondered if, if the, the same thing could be said about other ethnographies. And I set out to read them. I read about 50 ethnographies over the space of about maybe a year. And uh, of course, in, in most cases, you can't verify what the people are saying because the the locations are masked and the people involved all have pseudonyms and there are no dates. Uh, so it's extremely difficult to uh, to do any sort of uh, kind of fact-checking that you would do about journalism. Uh, and I uh, found whatever facts I could that seemed to be susceptible of fact-checking through sort of standard journalistic means. So, so, uh, Many things that I could fact check actually could be verified, uh, and and some things couldn't be. Uh, the, the, the the my my main finding though was that ethnographies did a very poor job of distinguishing between what the ethnographer had actually observed and things they had been told. Right, and I, I thought. That that is really the minimum requirement for reliability. When I when I'm reading a book, uh, I would like to know whether this is something the author really saw, uh, in which case I'm probably pretty much willing to take their word for it, or if it's in terms familiar to lawyers, whether it's hearsay and unverified, in which case I'm going to be more skeptical. Right. So among other things in your book, you, you mention Mitchell Denier's concept of an ethnographic trial. Um, how did that inform your research project, if at all? Denier is an extremely highly regarded and famous uh, ethnographer. He's at Princeton. Um, he got his PhD at the University of Chicago, and coincidentally, he did his undergraduate work at Northwestern. But, but he wrote um, two really, really highly regarded ethnographies. One is called Slim's Table about a restaurant in Hyde Park, and the other one is called Sidewalk, uh, and it's about magazine sellers on 6th Avenue in New York. He spent a year on the sidewalk selling uh, magazines. Uh, and in, in an article uh, that he wrote, he, he, he recognized uh, that one problem with ethnography is that you only ever get one person's view, right? You only get one side of the story. You only get the ethnographer's uh, reflections or, or observations. And he suggested that the ethnographer, ethnographers themselves should subject their own work to a sort of uh, cross-examination. That before, before you publish, uh, you ought to say... Uh, what would a cross-examiner ask about my own work? What have I been leaving out? Uh, what have I been reporting because it's convenient? And what facts have I omitted because they're inconvenient as sort of a, a self-check? And I, I thought that was an excellent idea uh, and uh, that I would therefore extend the ethnographic trial 
and ask the same sorts of questions about the material that I'd read. Mm. So in, 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 the, in evaluating the sort of epistemic practices of the ethnographic community, um, you used, I don't know if I got a metaphor or heuristic of like the difference between um, malpractice and negligence. And that was helpful for me in kind of understanding what you were getting at. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. In, in Denier's uh, article about the ethnographic trial, uh, he said uh, – you should imagine that you are being sued for ethnographic malpractice or that you might be exposed uh, to, to, to ethnographic malpractice and then see how you would adjust your work uh, to, to avoid that. Uh, I thought that was uh, a mistaken standard because you know malpractice is based on the practices within the community. And if every ethnographer was doing the same thing, then it wouldn't be malpractice, no matter how unreliable it might be. Uh, so I thought it would be better to substitute the concept of negligence, right, which is based on a reasonable person standard. What would a reasonable person want to see uh, in the way of uh, verification in ethnography? Right. And so that kind of legal distinction that you drew that you're describing and that you you drew on there seems like sort of something that you were bringing to the entire project in other words sort of using concepts drawn from litigation to think about kind of parallel practices in in the ethnographic community so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about how kind of litigation and your experience as a litigator and law professor kind of informed the way that you looked at practices within the ethnographic community and why i suggested looking at legal standards really pretty much as a metaphor um and and this has been i think either uh, naively or intentionally misunderstood uh, by a lot of uh, people in the ethnographic community, I, I don't suggest for a minute that uh, that that ethno ethnographic monographs should be subjected to legal standards uh, of evidence. Uh, but I do suggest that lawyers have spent a lot of time uh, working out ways to evaluate the reliability of data or evidence. And that by analogy or metaphor, it could be useful to ethnographers. Uh, not, not that they have to adhere to it uh, the same way courts do, but that they ought to be open to the experiences of other professions. I also looked at journalism and history. Uh, they ought to be open to uh, the experiences of other professions in uh, evaluating the reliability uh, of, their, of, of their own work. You know, one example uh, I, I alluded to earlier is the hearsay rule, right? As lawyers know, uh, the hearsay rule applies to statements uh, that are being offered for, for the truth of the matter asserted, or to, to make it simpler, that are being offered for their truth value, uh, as opposed to statements that are being offered to show the state of mind or a set of beliefs or fears or hopes uh, of, the, of the informant. And I suggested that ethnographers ought to draw the same distinction, not that they should st stop um, relying on hearsay. I mean, obviously, what they're there to do is to listen to their informants and report what they say. But they should use a, a, a 
be, be more um, precise in the purpose for reporting what their informants say uh, and w- whether the, the statements can be relied upon for their truth or rather they should be relied upon uh, for some, something else about the, uh, uh, about, about the informant. I'll give you an example. There's a really excellent book uh, called $2 a Day uh, by Eden and Schaefer. And it is uh, an ethnography of the, the poorest of all Americans, people who live on $2 a day or less. And it's more people than you would expect. And the, uh, the gist of the book is that even uh, extremely poor people who are, who are barely keeping body and soul together view themselves as potential workers. They're people who would like to be working, like to be employed, like to be working in the employment economy, uh, but for for many reasons, uh, most of which are beyond their control, they they find themselves really uh, in in the grip of extreme poverty, and that, that's what the book is about. And it's an extremely good book; I recommend it. Uh, but there are vignettes in the book, even so, uh, that I find very questionable, and and therefore I I did some uh, some research on them. One one was a woman. Uh, so one of the points in the book, of course, is that uh, women with children have a particularly difficult time extracting themselves from poverty, especially since um, cash welfare was pretty much ended in the uh, Clinton administration. You know, you used to have aid to families with dependent children, and that doesn't exist anymore. So they, they reported on, uh, on one young woman uh, who they said had made... Uh, every possible effort to avoid uh, becoming pregnant, uh, but uh, she was taking antibiotics uh, that neutralized her birth control, uh, and and therefore she became pregnant and had a child, and this, this resulted in a cycle of poverty. And they reported that as though it was a fact, that antibiotics neutralized birth control. Well, antibiotics don't neutralize birth control. Uh, which I learned uh, by uh, by consulting um, Planned Parenthood and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. It's a myth. Um, it's it's a rumor. Uh, it's a, a widely spread rumor, but but it's just not true. Um, so does, does this make much difference to the story? Uh, not, not really. Uh, but but I thought that it would be more responsible for the authors uh, to say that uh, the woman had had an explanation for how she had become accidentally pregnant. But but the real story must be that she was not as as um, dedicated to the use of birth control as as she says she was. And, and I, I thought that would have been a, a much clearer explanation of the situation. What makes this particularly interesting is that Catherine Eden, uh, the the author of this, one, the co-author of this book, has written two other books about um, uh, one one called Promises I Can Keep, uh, which was about uh, women who had children, unmarried women who had children, and the other one was called um, Doing the Best I Can, which was about the fathers, uh, unmarried fathers who had children, and in both of those books she had reported spotty or non-existent use of birth control 
as as the reason uh, that the, these kids had been conceived and born. Well, that's pretty understandable. But when we get to the book about poverty, uh, suddenly uh, it becomes the consequence of antibiotics uh, rather than irregular use of birth control. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So in your book, you also talk quite a bit about the practice of anonymization in ethnography. So I wonder if you could talk about why ethnographers anonymize, why you think that can be a problem, and sort of how to mitigate that problem consistent with the goals of ethnographic research. You have to compare it to journalism, where they don't anonymize, except in extreme circumstances where there is a particular reason. Uh, in contrast, ethnographers anonymize everything. Uh, they anonymize names. They anonymize neighborhoods. Uh, they change dates. Uh, they change personal characteristics going well beyond uh, anonymization, and they use composites, all of which are prohibited in journalism and, and seldom used in any kind of, uh, of nonfiction writing, although that is a technique very common in memoir. Well, why do they do it? Uh, one reason is that institutional review boards that approve human subjects research um, sometimes, often, require anonymization, at least as the default, the default. So uh, ethnographers have taken this default requirement of uh, the institutional review boards and uh, adhered to it uh, and expanded on it, um, which creates great difficulties if you ever want to try to validate or reproduce uh, the study, uh, if you ever want to try to reproduce the study. So, for example, if uh, a later ethnographer wanted to go back to a community and see if things have changed, well, that's impossible because you don't know the communities uh, where where the initial study uh, where the initial study was conducted. Um, the ethnographers, of course, say that they are ethically required to do this, uh, but I don't think that's true. I, I think, it, especially in terms of changing the names of the locales. That's just a tradition uh, that goes back to the early days of ethnography when William White uh, conducted a uh, uh, pathbreaking ethnography in the north end of Boston. Everybody knew it was the north end of Boston, but he called it Cornerville. Uh, the Lynns did an ethnography in uh, Muncie, Indiana, which they called Centerville. I, I think that's just a conceit. And, and that should be abandoned uh, completely. Uh, as to using real names, uh, I understand why that needs to be anonymized uh, as required by the IRBs, uh, but not always. Uh, you, I, I think ethnographers would be surprised at how many of their subjects would allow them to use real names. And since they have to get consents anyhow, uh, I think they ought to at least begin by asking, uh, may I use your name? And, and, and often enough, uh, the ethnographers who have requested that, including Mitchell Denier, uh, have been given permission to use real names. And I, I think more of that ought to happen. Mm. <clears throat> so in your book, 
You give some examples of ethnographers who you think have done an especially good job sort of on their own mitigating some of the problems that you identify. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what they did, why you think it was effective, and whether those are things that uh, other ethnographers can and should do as well. The paradigm is uh, Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, uh, which I I praised greatly. I used it as the, the sort of model of the best way to do it. And he and I were both validated, he more, uh, when he won the Pulitzer Prize. So uh, I, I want to say I was praising that book before it won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he fact-checked uh, the claims of his informants, I mean, as simple as that. Not only did he fact-check what people told him, but then he hired a professional fact-checker uh, who went over the material and compared it to his notes uh, to uh, to make sure that that claims were uh, were were supported. Just to give you one example, uh, he interviewed uh, a young woman who said she had dropped out of high school because there was a shooting in the school. Well, those things are recorded, uh, so he was able to check and see if there was a shooting at the school, uh, determined that there was not, and therefore he left that story out of his book. Obviously, not everything can be fact-checked. Uh, but more can be fact-checked than many ethnographers uh, take the time to do. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, are those the kinds of things that are available to all ethnographers? I mean, it sounds pretty burdensome and potentially expensive. Um, I mean, to what extent is that something that sort of people can do across the board? Or are there ways of approximating better practices, even if those can't necessarily be achieved? I think anybody who's writing a book can check public records. And I think that just ought to be part, part, part of writing a book. Um, anybody who's writing a book can wonder about the accuracy of things they've been told. And, and uh, with, uh, in the age of Google, uh, an awful lot of that can be uh, fact-checked uh, pretty readily. Uh, Desmond was asked a question about that in an interview with New York Magazine, uh, and he suggested that graduate students ought to take turns fact-checking each other, uh, that it can be done uh, on a reciprocal basis uh, for little or no expense. So how has your project, how has your book been received by the ethnographic community? Have, have people been receptive to some of the suggestions that you made, or has it been a more mixed reception? Well, some people have been extremely receptive. I've gotten very good reviews and very good comments uh, from very senior and prominent ethnographers. And then there have been howls of outrage. Uh, I, I think uh, one thing I have learned about um, ethnographers is that they do not take well to criticism. Um, and I, I, my, I, I'm, I'm just fine with people writing critical reviews. doesn't bother me. Uh, I post them on my blog uh, along with the favorable reviews so that people can see them, as you know. Uh, but I was really, I've been really pretty shocked uh, by the defensiveness and wagon circling uh, which I have not seen in in other disciplines. Mm. I mean, are there particular aspects of your critique that 
ethnographers or kind of some ethnographers have found especially troubling or objected to most strongly? And, and if so, why do you think that is? Well, well, I, I think ethnography itself is, um, is questioned within sociology. The turn in contemporary sociology has, has been toward um, quantification, quant, uh, quantifiable work. Um, uh, uh, so the quants are sort of um, in the ascendance uh, in, in sociology and qualitative sociologists, ethnographers, um, are, are feeling themselves somewhat marginalized. Uh, so when I come along and say, uh, you need to fact check your qualitative work more, you can understand why uh, this has been characterized uh, constantly as though I were attacking the field, which is not true. I like ethnography. I've read more ethnography in the last couple of years, I think, than most professionals. I think it's enriching. I think it's interesting. I think it gets at uh, issues that the quants uh, cannot address. Uh, I just think it needs to be uh, stronger uh, and more more re- reproducible. But th- there's been a lot, lot of a uh, lot of resentment about that. I'll give you one example. Um, I told you about the. Uh, the, the the alleged hospital um, uh, blockade uh, in in uh, Professor Goffman's book, and my attempts to uh, determine whether that was accurate uh, were were pretty extensive. I, I interviewed about ten or twelve people who had direct knowledge, and I looked at other ethnographies. Um, uh, so so I, you know, I thought I did about as 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 much work as somebody could do to to, to try to, to verify it, but in a recently published review, uh, an ethnographer said uh, what, what, what Lubet really needs to do is, is, is the shoe leather research and, and go to the hospitals and see whether the police are there and see if the nursing staff is, is cooperating with, with police. Um, so, so I thought that was pretty defensive. Uh, first, of course, uh, in Goffman's book, the hospitals are anonymized, so I, I, I don't know, and and they're in Philadelphia, and I'm in Chicago. Uh, but but the real issue I thought is, well, how come you're not doing that? You know, why why hasn't another ethnographer in Philadelphia, of whom there are many, uh, tried to tried to verify this? Uh, you you would see that in journalism, you would see that in the hard sciences, you would see that all the time in political science, you know, people attempt to replicate or verify uh, the work of others. Now, here's an example of a very controversial observation in ethnography that could be very easily uh, checked out uh, by another ethnographer working in the same community. And to this day, nobody's done it. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it would be a real scoop if it were a journalist. Well, the one journalist who did look into it from Philadelphia Magazine found no evidence of the phenomenon, um, as I found no evidence of the phenomenon, as somebody who's, um, who would be knowledgeable about it has said, said, said that it doesn't happen. Oh, uh, another law professor, Paul Campos, uh, from the University of Colorado, also looked into this uh, and found no evidence of it. But, uh, you know, if I'm wrong... If there really are police checkpoints, uh, some ethnographer ought, ought to prove me wrong, right? I mean, 
that's the way science, social mm. science, is supposed to work. Uh, but it does not seem to happen much uh, in ethnography. Mm. Are, have there been critical responses from the ethnographic community that you thought were well taken or that, that changed your mind about some of the positions you took in your book? I, I would love to see uh, somebody in the ethnographic community uh, reinvestigate and show me wrong. Uh, that would be fine with me. Uh, it hasn't happened. I'm, I'm thinking more kind of broadly in terms of the sort of philosophical or kind of methodological uh, approaches that you talk about in the book. To what extent has the ethnographic community pushed back against any of the assessments or kind of prescriptions that that you suggest? And to the extent they have, do, did you find any of that c convincing? Well, they've pushed back a lot. Um, the typical response uh, when I have reinvestigated something and questioned its validity has been to say, well, I can imagine that that could be true, uh, which I, I think is a, a rather invalid way of looking at the world. You know, I think the, the burden of proof, put it in lawyer's terms, is on the person who makes the affirmative assertion. And, and I can imagine it, uh, I, I think, is a, an extremely weak uh, way of evaluating evidence uh, in social science. Um, I think it would be fine if we were looking at oral history or memoir or fiction, you know, the, the, the ability to imagine a state of affairs uh, is a fine way of evaluating that sort of writing. But in social science, uh, I, I would expect to see more. And I've been very disappointed, actually, uh, that ethnographers have not seen the problem with, with imagining uh, that something is true. <laughs> so it seems like your book has provoked or maybe eliminated a kind of schism within uh, the ethnographic community. Um, I, I wonder, in closing, if you could reflect on whether you anticipate or see the beginnings of sort of efforts toward reform of epistemic practices. I think there is a, a movement in ethnography uh, to greater validation and more fact-checking and clearer distinction between what has been seen and what has been heard. Uh, I hesitate to claim uh, credit for it, uh, but the timing <laughs> suggests uh, that I have uh, caused people to rethink the way they're presenting uh, their their material. Here and there, uh, someone says, well, I don't like what Lubet does. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think law tells us anything about ethnography, uh, but we should fact check more. So I, I'm, I'm happy with that. It's fine with me to have, have stirred that discussion, and I hope it continues. Excellent. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the program. This is a really fascinating conversation. And I got to say, I, I really thought your book was fantastic. Great. Thank you. Of your mind 
What you're hoping to find is the real thing. It's the real thing.